0: If you have a Bible, open it with me to the book of Acts, chapter 23. Acts 23. Last week, as we finished Acts 22, we saw that the apostle Paul, after being falsely accused by the Jews of taking a Gentile, uh, into the temple, uh, that a riot had broken out on the temple mount. They drug Paul out of the temple and began to, uh, proceeded to, be, to beat the daylights out of him. <clears throat> And they did that until he fell into the, until the Romans showed up. And when they showed up, they backed off and the Romans had taken Paul and put him in chains and hauled him off to the Fortress Antonia, which is in the northwest corner of the Temple Mount. So as Paul is going, he asked the commander for permission to address this crowd. And, uh, the commander had given it. So Paul there in chains on the temple or on the, the, the steps of the fortress begins to address the crowds. And things went really well at first, <laughs> at first, uh, as he he's going along and he's relating to them. Uh, they, remember, we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when he says, look, I was you. I understand your mindset. I understand the things that you're wrestling with. I understand what's going on here. And he related those things to them. That that was just where he had been in Judaism, raised at the feet of Gamaliel. Remember, we looked at all of that. And then he went on to share his testimony of how Jesus had gotten a hold of him there on that road to Damascus. Uh, subsequently, had let him know that he had plans for Paul's life. So, uh, <laughs> and then if Paul goes on and he relates that plan. Uh, and the minute that he <clears throat> relates that plan, that Jesus was calling him, to take the gospel to the Gentiles, as anybody that's not a Jew, <clears throat> the crowd went nuts. Uh, they went into a frenzy, a second riot, then uh, broke out. So uh, the commander, he then, he ordered Paul to be brought inside the barracks, was about to interrogate him. We looked at this last week. Uh, and he was by means of, of of being scourged. And we looked at that. We looked at the picture of a Roman scourge, flagellum, horrible device, horrible form of torture. So uh, at that moment, Paul asked the centurion who was binding him with leather thongs to tie him to a pole. Uh, he said, is it lawful for you to scourge a Roman citizen, number one? Number two, who is uncondemned? There's been no due process here. They didn't even know what Paul was there for, let alone be able to charge him, let alone scourge him now. And so uh, Paul puts the guy on the spot. The centurion doesn't have any ability to do that, anything about that himself because he has a lower rank than the commander, the, the tribune, the Roman tribune. Uh, that he serves under, so he goes off to the commander and, and tells the commander about this. He says, look, you gotta be careful with this guy. (laughs) He's a Roman. (laughs) And so, I just imagine when the, the, when the centurion related that to the commander, I I imagine that his face cut kind of white because he knew that if he prosecuted a Roman citizen, if he had him scorched, if he went through with what he was doing, he knew that he would be in deep trouble with Rome. That he would be accountable for this guy, he had already blown it when he had him chained before he knew he was a Roman citizen out on the the, the temple mount itself. So. Uh Anyway, so that's how that went. And, and after going to Paul, he questions him now about his citizenship. And he finds out that Paul is a freeborn citizen. You know, remember uh, Claudius Lysias, the commander, he says, well, you know, I paid a lot of money for my citizenship. And Paul says, well, I didn't pay a thing for it. I was born this way. And uh, so uh, that put the tribune in a quandary at this point is on one hand, he doesn't even know what to charge Paul with, so he can't hold him for very long. Roman law dictated that you had to release him, very much like our laws, if you don't have anything by which to hold him. And he, since Paul had addressed the crowd in Hebrew, he had no idea. On the other hand, if he let Paul loose with the, the size of the crowds that were there on the Temple Mount that day for Pentecost... I mean, somewhere between, Josephus tells us that the city would swell to somewhere between one and two million people, easily a hundred thousand people on the Temple Mount, that if he puts, if he lets Paul go after he's seen what the crowd is capable of, he's, it could have, it could have just gone to, on a slippery slope and gotten out of control very quickly. So he's in, he's on the spot. He's trying to figure out what to do with this guy. <laughs> and so, uh, His solution had been to convene the Sanhedrin. Now, that's a ruling council of 70 elders, 70, and yeah, if you guys have been through our studies here, I refer to them as the creepy religious guys. (laughs) Um, 70 creepy religious guys, not all of them. Um, To be fair, some of them were were spot on. I mean, you look at the people, the, the Sanhedrin in Jesus' day. I mean, you've got at least Jesus, or at least Joseph of Arimathea, you've got Nicodemus, there are people that really did come to understand that Jesus was their promised Messiah. But anyway, he decides, the the commander decides to send Paul to the Sanhedrin. He's hoping at that point, uh, because he didn't understand what was going on here, that the council would be able to come to some kind of a consensus as to what they were charging Paul for. He is bound by the law, especially now knowing that he's a Roman citizen. So their authority was limited, but it was his hope uh, that these men would reveal just what the accusation that they had towards Paul was. So as we begin chapter 23 uh, last week, towards the end of our study, uh, and I just look at that, I, I can only imagine... What was going through the apostle's uh, apostle Paul's mind? Uh, he you know, had originally gone to the Temple Mount the day before. Remember, it said that he had four men who had taken the vow of a Nazarite. Uh, it had been an attempt to dispel the, the gossip and the criticism about him that was going around the city, and and people were saying that yeah, he was advocating abandoning Jewish culture and Jewish tradition, even though the gospel, I mean, terminated the effect of the law of Moses on people as far as a means to relate to God. Now it was by grace. That's true. But the Jews had held on to their culture, and Paul never had a beef about that. He held on to his as a Jew. We see that over and over in his letters, that that he hung on to very tightly at times his Jewish heritage. So they were saying that, that was that was a thing with him, and it wasn't. So that hadn't gone well, because then he got accused, you know, beaten up, as I mentioned, and uh, put into chains by the Roman Tribune. And, and then after that, what appeared to be a very fortunate turn of events, uh, we looked at Paul's crowning moment, been praying for years to be able to have an audience with the Jews. And the Tribune gives him permission there on, on the steps of, of the fortress, go ahead and speak, Paul. And, and so we looked at that. Paul would have thought, this is it. This is wonderful. That didn't go very well either. <laughs> so... Um, the crowd violently erupted once he mentioned, again, once he dropped the the word Gentile. So uh, thinking about this, now he's going to be going before the council. uh, And it's a synonymous term. If you hear council, Sanhedrin, elders, it's the same thing. It's the ruling body in Israel. (laughs) It sounds just like the donut truck when I was a kid. Anyway... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it's kind of like a Pavlov response, don't it? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> sorry, that just took me back. <laughs> Thinking about this, you know, he's, he's, gonna, he's, he's standing here before the council now, and it reminded me of something that Jesus told his men uh, there in Mark chapter 13. <clears throat> in Mark 13, 9, Jesus says, But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils. And you'll be beaten in the synagogues. You shall be brought before rulers and kings for my sake. And here's the deal. Here's why. For a testimony to them. So, and I don't know if Paul, you know, this is the words of Jesus. And he may have been privy to that at that time. However, we know that, that the Lord is working throughout all of this by the Holy Spirit. And that this was a thing for Paul to consider. So here he is now. Now, after two failed attempts to reach his people, He'd be delivered up to the council where he would be able to testify to the religious leaders of the nation. Uh, He was being given an audience with the most powerful and influential men in Judaism. These guys were the top echelon. They were the ones who had a say in all spiritual matters in the nation. If he could win them think about the possibility. That's got to be going through his mind. It's got to be going through his heart. Uh, so it, when, as we got into this, we saw Paul looking, the, it says he looked earnestly at them. In other words, he's checking them out and, and that he's, you know, he's definitely looking. We don't know how many of them he knew from past experience, from years before when he was a part of them. And we'll look at that. Uh, we have to assume that some of these men knew him. Some of these men had worked side by side with him uh, in, in Jerusalem in the Pharisaic party as, as far as being rulers of the Jews. He had been one. So now he's standing before them on trial. Uh, so he's the first to speak. Uh, and, and he begins by, he, he, like I said, he's looking at these guys and he says, look, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. In other words, he's saying, you know what? You've got me here and I don't, I am conscious of nothing against myself with, that pertains to why you have me here. Uh, and he starts off that way. And with that, the high priest, this guy Ananias, and he was known as, he was, and I was doing a little bit more reading uh, on this guy. He was the most corrupt high priest Israel had in the first century. I mean, this guy was, uh, just a major creep. He was—he really was the creepy religious guy. So he orders Paul struck on the mouth, and, and you know, he tells one of the guys standing next to him to hit him in the mouth, and—and and, and that's where Paul triggers. And, and, and again. Uh, this guy, yeah, he looked at Paul as a turncoat, as a traitor to Judaism, uh, and, and yet he orders an illegal act in a legal proceeding, and that sets Paul off. Uh, and in his anger, he called the high priest a whitewashed wall. Very similar to what Jesus called the religious leaders in his day, when he says, you guys are like whitewashed tombs. I can go into a whole thing on that. There was a whole background on that. But I'm not going to take the time. But it was an insult that was essentially saying, you are just a hypocrite. And, and look at you. Here you are purporting to stand for the law of Moses and you violated in having me struck by this guy. And so, and, and Paul's mad. I mean, he's very upset. It, this, this really got him riled up. <clears throat> so he calls this guy a hypocrite. And, and we finished last week looking at verses four and five. Paul was asked why, or if he reviled God's high priest in speaking to him that way. And so remember, Paul does understand the law of Moses. And, and having he was pretty riled up. And when he realized that he was addressing the high priest, he softened. And he goes on to quote uh, the law of Moses in Exodus 22, that one shouldn't curse a ruler of the people. And so his conciliatory tone uh, here, it illustrates that he respected the office of the high priest, even though he had no respect for the man who was occupying. And we talked about that. We talked about that. I mean, I look out today and I have respect for some of the political offices in the land. I don't have a lot of respect for the people that are in them. So uh, just a good thing to understand here. So I also believe that Paul understood their disgust towards him. They were disgusted with him. Um, we'll see in the text this morning that he once again, he appeals to them by saying, look, I was You. And he's trying to get common ground with these men by saying, look, I, I'm a Pharisee. I was you. And we'll see how that goes. So as we pick up the text this morning in verse six, he's still standing before the Sanhedrin, being examined by them, no doubt hoping to get through to them with the truth of Jesus, the Messiah. That was always his goal. That was always what was right in front of him. It wasn't, he wasn't there to argue points. He was there to tell them, look, let me show you how Jesus is the one that we, our nation has looked for for all of these years. And let me show you that he was the one and that he is the one, that he's the living Lord of us all. And and they were just, they were just hardened. Verse six, uh, but when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, men and brethren, I'm a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee, concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged this is great. Now, I believe that the thing he perceives, you got to understand that there were two parties in Israel. There were the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Uh, I remember being a little kid in Sunday school, they were saying, the Pharisees were fair, you see, and the Sadducees, they were sad, you see. And it's like, no, 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 (laughs) that's not it. (laughs) I just had to throw that in. But the Sadducees at this point in Israel, they were the ruling party. And that's why he knows that this high priest, the guy that is ruling, he's the top dog here, he's not going to get a fair trial by him because they don't even believe in the resurrection. We'll talk about that as we go. And so what he perceives is this is not going to go well for me. So I'm just going to light a fuse and throw it out there. (laughs) And that's exactly what happens. Uh, He wasn't going to get a fair trial. So he knew that again the, the ruling party, but the Pharisees they were also the majority party. So it was this balance of power, very much like what we see in the political spectrum, the political realm in our country today. There, you know, you had there was a two party system back then for the Jews, and and they sort of switched off who was leading the country at that time. Well, uh, so he throws out the deal there uh, to the <laughs> to the council. Now you got to understand the Sadducees and the the Pharisees were bitter. Enemy. They were absolutely, and we'll see that here. I mean, it gets it, it, this thing devolves into a fist fistfight. Uh, <laughs> but they were bitter enemies. However, uh, have you ever heard the saying, "The enemy of my enemy is my friend"? And and, and and you know, there's very debatable information on the origin of that. Some say it was an Arabian proverb. Now it goes back about a thousand years before Christ, before the Arabs were a thing. But at any rate, that's what's going on here because they are united in their hatred of the Apostle Paul, and they're united in their rejection of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that brought them together for a very short time and in a very short window here. So uh, (laughs) Paul says, I want you to note too, here he says, I am a Pharisee, not I was a Pharisee. Uh, Not only that, he says, I'm the son of a Pharisee. I come from a family of Pharisees. I am you. And that's what he's telling these guys. Now in Philippians 3, he describes himself in his former life as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was a big deal in Judaism, and he's letting these guys know, look, there has been a huge transaction in my life. I'm not standing here as some country hick. I am standing here as somebody that understands our religion. I am here standing here as someone that understands what it is to be a Pharisee, a ruler of the Jews, and I cashed it all in. As he says in Philippians three, for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, walked away from all of it. He knew the Sadducees; uh, they were they were known they were the religious liberals of his day. Uh, <laughs> I was telling somebody recently, you get a whole room full of conservatives and you throw one liberal in there. Guess who's going to be setting policy? <laughs> and, and the person that's making all the noise. And so, and again, I'm not here to pound the political pavement. I'm just here to make a point. He knows that these guys are deeply divided. <laughs> and so, uh, he, again, he lights a fuse. He, he states that he was being called into question concerning the hope and the resurrection of the dead. I think this is brilliant. Verse 7. And when he said this, a dissension, note that it's a dissension now, it arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, and no angel, and no spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. So the Sadducees, they didn't believe in the resurrection, they didn't believe in angels, they didn't believe in spirits, they didn't believe in life after death. They had no sense of the metaphysical. And metaphysical simply means, and I'm not getting weird here, but it means beyond, meta means beyond the physical. They they had no sense that there was anything that went beyond the physical realm. So they they had no metaphysical. Everybody has a metaphysic, by the way. The question becomes, is is yours accurate or not? Because uh, I'm going to rabbit trail. (laughs) No, I'm avoiding it. I'm going to avoid it. I'm sorry. All right. But the Sadducees, they embraced only the Torah, only the first five books uh they did not want to hear about the rest uh, and and they did, and that they only did that just in the, strictly in the sense of observing and keeping the law of moses uh because they had no sense of judgment uh and they had no sense of passing into eternity uh standing before god they were essentially hedonists in, their, in the way that they lived their lives. They were very hedonistic, living for pleasure, living for what this life could offer. We see that borne out in the actions of the high priest here. And again, we could get into him because Josephus had a lot to say about this guy. But just rest assured, this guy was, he was definitely in the creepy religious guy class. So the Pharisees, on the other hand, they had been born out of the Babylonian captivity. And they were ultra conservative in their theology now to the point of ridiculousness at points but they wanted to preserve orthodoxy orthodox the word orthodox is it's a latin term and it means straight glory we teach orthodox christian doctrine in this church because that's the thing it is straight doctrine it's straight biblical biblically based biblically centered biblically sound doctrine these guys, they wanted to teach Old Testament orthodoxy, but they got very carried away with it on certain points. However, the point I'm making is that set up a huge rub between them and the Sadducees. They couldn't stand each other. Um, the Pharisees embraced the law. They also embraced the prophets, uh, the entire volume of the Hebrew scriptures. So <clears throat> they also believed in the resurrection, uh, a resurrection anyway, they believed in an unseen realm with angels and spirits they also understood righteousness to be an essential ingredient <clears throat> excuse me in standing before god however Their means of obtaining, maintaining that righteousness was terribly flawed. Uh, they, because they leaned on their own works. They leaned upon human effort. They thought that they could produce righteousness. That's why they were so caught up in every little thing. You go to Israel today and you remember being at at our hotel and on Shabbat on Saturday, you can't even press a button. You got to take the Shabbat elevator that stops at every floor. And if you're on the 10th floor, you're going to be there a while. They're that particular. Uh, go into a restroom and they'd have a, a, a little pitcher with two handles on it so you could ceremonially, ceremonially wash yourself as you finished using the restroom. I mean, very particular. They always went to, this is what is required to produce righteousness, right standing, that's what that means, before God. That's why Paul, over and over again in his letters, he emphasizes the, the, the fact that righteous right standing before God comes only as a gift by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, period. That's the only way that it comes. It's not about how many little old ladies you helped across the street. It's not about how much you did, how much you tithed. It's not about how much human effort you pour into this thing. Now, a healthy Christian... The response of my life to his grace absolutely is obedience. I want to obey my master. I want to live for the kingdom. I want because I love him. Because the, the motivation of my heart is I want to be poured out on the altar of service. And that's a good thing. But it's never a means towards salvation. It's a result of it. So verse 9. Then there arose a loud outcry. So we've gone from there being a dissension <laughs> to now it's a loud outcry. Things are heating up in here. Uh, and the scribes in the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, uh, The scribes of the Pharisees' party arose and protested, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So their point is consistent with Gamaliel's point. Remember in Acts chapter 5, he says, Look, Jews, you've got to be careful because you don't want to end up on the wrong side of God in this thing and be found that you're actually working against God and dealing with Paul. That was what they did back in Acts chapter 5 and they are talking about the apostles. That's what he's saying here. But I don't believe that that's what he's getting at, the scribe that speaks up. And he, it sounds like he's defending Paul, but I really believe that his statement... Uh, is directed more towards being against the Sadducees than for Paul. And we'll see that borne out because <laughs> there's an evil, evil scheme that is hatched here shortly. And these guys are part of it. These guys that are saying, oh, no, hey, you know, don't, don't worry about it. If, yeah, if an angel's spoken to him, don't, yeah, don't come against that. And it's just not what's going on. Verse 10, now there arose a great dissension, when there arose a great dissension. So we've gone from dissension to (laughs) this loud outcry, and now a great dissension. These guys are starting to duke it out. This thing has gotten really, and I don't know if you've seen a room full of people that are very passionate. The Jews were very passionate. And when they came together and they started to clash, they were very demonstrative (laughs) in in that. And this thing was getting dangerous. I mean, it, it got that heated up. And so therefore the commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him into the barracks. So at this point, the commander had had enough. He he says, all right, we're all done here. This isn't working out for me. I'm not getting anywhere with figuring out what this guy needs to be charged with. And so he tells his soldiers, go down, do you do whatever's necessary? And if heads roll, heads roll. You just get the guy out of here, out of there, because I need to make sure I'm responsible for him now as a Roman citizen, and I got to protect him. So he sends the guys down and they, they, that's what they do. So, but I want you to think about this with me for a minute." Imagine what it would have been like going, and what was going through the Apostle Paul's head? Uh, he'd been pulled away from this, the third angry mob that he'd now experienced in the last couple of days. Think about it. He had the best of intention. After years, he had prayed for years to have an audience with the Jews. Then he had the opportunity to return to Jerusalem and, and prove to them that Jesus was their Messiah. And... and, and uh, the Apostle Paul would have known by this point that in God's economy, it's not about results; it's about faithfulness. We leave the results to Him. I, I, it bothers me when I see ministries driven by metrics. It's not about metrics; it's about the love of God shed abroad in our heart. So He knows that. He knows it's not about. He knows it's about just being faithful to what God's put before Him. But you've got to realize He's not some Superman. He's not devoid of emotion. These things must have profoundly affected him, and I bet they did. We're told in chapter 20 that he served the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials, which happened to him by the plotting of the Jews. He experienced, folks, this is on the tail end of his third missionary journey, and he had had opposition along the way uh, throughout all three of those journeys, sometimes heavy opposition. But nothing like, nothing like. In the midst of the opposition, he'd seen thousands upon thousands uh, of people give their lives to Christ. He'd seen great fruit in his ministry. He'd seen the miraculous transformation of the new birth and lives forever changed over and over and over again over the years that he was on the road. Yet here in Jerusalem, Luke does not record one conversion in this whole time, not one. Imagine what's going through his mind, what's in his heart. He's there in the barracks. He's by himself, probably in a cell. They had holding cells in the barracks. The apostles have been there. We don't know what, what's going through his mind, but we can imagine. He's reflecting. Probably, folks, <laughs> my pastor for years, uh, as he was training me, would say, John, you've got to have a soft heart and a thick hide. That's what's required. And Paul here, I, I know that he's got a soft heart. We've seen over and over again, he switches from being missionary to pastor. In these writings, he definitely had a shepherd's heart. And he must have been going, why, Lord? What what happened here? Ever since I got to the, the city, I mean, especially these last few days, the hostility has been overwhelming, filled with discouragement, doubt, failure upon failure to reach his country. I wouldn't be surprised if we found out when we got there that he was reflecting and wondering, Lord, is this the end of my ministry? I'm not seeing anything happening. Did I Did I just blow it? Did I make myself unusable to you when I essentially jumped to the high priest because of that thing that he did to me? I'll tell you what, the enemy is there. The accuser of the brethren is there to dance on our heads when we blow it. And and I can't help but think that there is at least an element of that going on here. The other thing is he's alone. Where was James, Jesus' brother? We see him earlier when Paul gets to... Where were the elders from the church in Jerusalem? Where were the thousands of faithful in the city as Paul risked everything to bring the gospel to his beloved countrymen? He may have felt very alone. What we're going to see here, was he alone? Verse 11, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, be of good cheer, Paul. For as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. That would have absolutely blown my mind were I in that place. Thinking about, you know, all of these things, all of these doubts, all of these emotions, tears. And then there you look up in your cell and there's the Lord Jesus himself standing there and he starts to talk to you. I love that. You know, in the 40 years, I was telling somebody the other day, I'll be 40 in September. (laughs) I wish. No, in in September, it'll be 40 years since I gave my life to Christ. And and so my 40th birthday is coming up. (laughs) I can pretend. Um, Seriously. and, And I look at that. I mean, but in the 40 years, I've been walking with the Lord way too often. I've seen an attitude of shoot the wounded. It happens. Sometimes, folks, sometimes Christians are the most judgmental people on earth. And I want to exhort our church, don't fall into it. I want you to notice Jesus' words here. He says, cheer up, Paul. And that's what it means. I mean, that's Bible words, be of good cheer. But he is saying, he's saying, hey, Paul, cheer up. I know it's been tough. I mean, that's implied. I know that it, this has not been a fun road. I want you to cheer up. He doesn't haul out a list of accusations against him or how he could have done better. I think about how many times the Lord could have hauled out a list of accusations against me. He really could have done better. But he doesn't. And I think that's conspicuous in its absence here. It's interesting too, Jesus is not ignorant of the wrongs that were committed against Paul. He sees those. But he doesn't go into a list of accusations against the people, or the Sanhedrin, or the soldiers. Understand, they would be responsible for their own fate, but it wouldn't be based on the actions that had happened here. It would be based upon whether or not they had given their lives, whether or not they had come to faith, that they had come to trust that Jesus went to that cross for them. That's the only thing that will not be forgiven. And so he's not here to beat Paul up. He's not here to beat the people up. He's here to just say, hey, Paul, cheer up. I've got some plans for you. Even from the cross, Jesus didn't do that. Remember, there from the cross, he says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Gracious to the end, long-suffering, to the end, patient with men. to the end. So Jesus simply encourages this man. He notes, and, and noting that his time in Jerusalem was ending, that he had further plans and usefulness for him because he was going to now send him to Rome. I, you know, and I can't help but think when Paul referred to himself as not as a prisoner of Rome, but a prisoner of Christ, this is the origin of that because he never referred to himself as a prisoner of Rome. It was always a prisoner of Christ. Jesus said, I'm sending you. And from here, we'll begin to see the circumstances unfold through which God would get Paul out of the city and on his way. I want you to understand and I want you to see the circumstances align here. He doesn't just wave a magic wand and say, okay, you're on your way to Rome or here you are at Rome. He could have done that. But he allows circumstances to come to bear in Paul's life. And they're not great circumstances in order to accomplish his purposes and his will for his life. That's what he does for us. We'll talk about that in a minute. verse 12. And when it was day, some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. So folks, this is a sinister plan. Yeah, I named the study that because I was looking for something to put on there. But seriously, this is, a, this is an evil thing. These guys, essentially what's literally being said here is with an oath, we call down a curse upon ourselves. The, the Greek word for curse, when Paul says, you know, if somebody comes, if they come up with another gospel, let them be accursed, that's the word anathema. It's the same word here that they say, let us be cursed of God if we're not able to kill Paul, they're that serious about it. Now, if you've read ahead, (laughs) you know the pact that they make doesn't come to fruition. So the question occurs to me is how many of these more than 40 guys who came up with this evil scheme go on to die of starvation or die of thirst? I would argue probably not one. However, at the heart of it, they're seriously plotting the premeditated murder of the apostle Paul. And that's serious, even though this Seems rather theatrical <laughs> to me. Uh, by the way, the priests had the ability, uh, in, in the way that they wrangled around with all the rules and regulations, they had the ability to absolve people of these oaths that they made in the event they didn't work out. So, you know, these guys think that's a pretty safe bet. Yeah, let's just, uh, yeah, we're going we're, we're gonna to be cursed to God. And then it's like, yeah, yeah, well, that didn't work out. So let's go see the priest. Verse 14, so... They came to the chief priests and the elders and said, we have bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. I, that I, that would not be an oath for me. Uh, that's all I can say. <laughs> I like food. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to uh, take make further inquiries concerning him, but we are ready to kill him before he comes near. So they go to the religious leaders of the nation... The same council that Paul had stood before. And they say, look, we've got this plan. We're going to kill him. Now, we need you to be willing accomplices in this whole deal. Again, this is the chief priests. This is the elders. This is the guys that were entrusted with (laughs) supposedly the oracles of God. And I would say, not a chance. It's remarkable. Same guys that were there when the council convened when Paul stood trial before them, just a couple of days before it's also remarkable to me that these guys go along with there yeah we're in verse sixteen, so when paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went he entered the barracks and told paul, so evidently Paul had family in Jerusalem, his sister's son, that would be his nephew, uh, and he very possibly again comes from a family of Pharisees. He may have been a Pharisee himself and therefore privy to at some point information that had leaked. And he got wind of this plot to kill Paul, to murder him. So his nephew comes and uh, he goes and he tells his uncle. Verse 17, then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, take this young man to the commander for he's something to tell him. So he took him and he brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him and asked me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. And I'll bet the commander, remember, (laughs) we've already seen... Jesus had come to Paul, let him know that he was headed for Rome. So I want you to understand, as the plot unfolds here, I want you to see divine providence coming into play. And that's what it's called. When God is doing, He, from eternity, from the place where he dwells, he begins to allow and to work circumstances in here that are unmistakable. Because he said, I'm sending you to Rome. Now this is how he's doing it. I don't understand all of it. We'll get to that. So it's no mistake that the Jews, my point is that that they hatched this evil scheme to kill him. It's no mistake that Paul's nephew got wind of it. It's no mistake that he was able to get an audience with his uncle to go into the jail there uh, in the fortress Antonia. It's no mistake that he was able to get with the centurion and then with the commander. I mean, he goes straight to the guy. Verse 19, and the commander took him by the hand and went aside and asked him privately, what is it that you have to tell me? Now, well, remember in all of this, the commander is still in the dark. He's been in the dark from the moment he arrested Paul on the, and had him chained on the Temple Mount, to the riot that ensued afterwards with the Jews, to the fight that broke out among the Sanhedrin. He is still scratching his head. He has no idea what this man has done. He just knows that everywhere Paul goes, there is a lot of trouble. I mean, everywhere every time this guy opens his mouth, it's just... It just breaks loose. I have to think that he was eager to see Paul's nephew because finally, perhaps, he get an understanding of what was going on. Well, that wouldn't be the case either. So the only light that Paul's nephew would be able to shed for the tribune was that the Jews now had upped the ante. And so now they had this sophisticated plan in place to murder him. Verse 20. And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them, for more than 40 of them lie in wait for him. Men who have bound themselves by an oath, that they will either neither eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. The plot thickens. So it's interesting. We don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us who this group of assassins are. Uh, as reading in some of the commentaries, it's possible that they were part of the Sicarii. Remember those guys, the dagger men, the ones that the, the, the commander had mistaken Paul for when he had him arrested? Um, don't know. It's also worth noting here that Paul would have a military escort wherever he went. I mean, he is essentially in custody. And so what these assassins would have been plotting is not only Paul's death, but they would have to, dispatch the soldiers to get to him. So the commander sees this. I mean, this is getting into, this is getting out of hand. Verse 22, so the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. Uh, And you know, I just think that it's, it's really, I I like the way the commander deals with Paul's nephew. Takes him by the hand, pulls him aside, hears him out. uh, and, And then he says, you know, just, hey, keep it quiet he called for two centurions, verse 23, saying, Prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Are you serious? Wow! (laughs) And provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. So he's appreciative of the young man's information. The commander orders this huge military escort to take Paul under the cover of night at the third hour of the night. So that would be 9 p.m. to Caesarea. And now Caesarea, it was the military headquarters for their occupation of Palestine. So that's where the governor lived and that's where he would be going. So the other thing too about this is that that I don't think that this big show of force from the commander is because he's just all affectionate towards Paul. I think that there's some self-preservation going on here because first the commander needs to ensure that Paul, a Roman citizen, makes it safely to Caesarea. Otherwise, again, he would have to answer for all that had gone on. So he wants to be sure that he's sure that he's sure. And he orders this huge contingent, this military contingent to get on their horses, to take the spearmen, to take the soldiers. I mean, this the big deal and get this guy down to Caesarea. In other words, get him out of my hair. That's the second thing. And he's got nowhere. In this whole ordeal. I mean, I can only imagine the Tribune being very frustrated by this point. It's like these crazy Jews, they keep getting jacked up with this guy. I can't figure out why they're jacked up. I just know they're jacked up. And, you know, if I let him go here, there's going to be another riot. We've already seen three. So let's get this guy out of here. And I'll bet he was relieved as the escort left the fortress and rode off into the night. (laughs) Goodbye. We're going to stop there. This morning, but I want to uh, take a look at some things as we finish. The first thing that I want to draw out of the text that we're looking at here is simply this. Cheer up. I, you know, you know, I love reading sophisticated doctrinal treatises. I love reading, you know, the, these really heady men who've been called to theological positions. I love, and I love all of that stuff, but I also love the simplicity of the gospel, the simplicity of our Lord. And there are times where he comes to us and his message to us is no more complicated than, hey, John, cheer up. I've got that. We've looked at how the Apostle Paul would have felt sitting in the barracks of the Antonia Fortress after having been rescued from the council. Uh, and I have to believe that he anticipated the Jews' response would have been similar to that which he had experienced in city after city throughout his journeys. Remember, he had seen huge crowds come. He would just simply throw the gospel out there and people would be going, yeah, I want what you've got. wasn't happening. He, he saw the Holy Spirit poured out thousands of lives impacted by the gospel that he, those that worked with him, had seen. they shared. You can only imagine the discouragement as he sat there perhaps wondering, where did it all go so wrong? What happened? These had been the largest, as I mentioned, the largest crowds he'd ever preached to. These had been the most powerful and influential people that he'd ever had an audience with. Now sitting in the barracks In the fortress, he he has to have wondered. The only time that anyone, by the way, had shown even the remotest interest in what he had to say had been the scribes in the council. And that was definitely in the middle of a political dogfight with the Sadducees. So that really didn't amount to much because they were part of the group that turned on him and that were participating in this plot to kill him. My point is, with all the crowds and the people and the council and the politics and the soldiers, he hadn't seen one person turn to Christ. He also hadn't seen anyone from the Jerusalem church and then Jesus showed up. You know, I love that. Uh, I remember Billy, uh, one of my boys, he's my son by choice, not by birth, but uh, very much my son. Uh, we rode together, working together for 15 years. And we had these wonderful Bible studies every day on our way, driving to a billboard that we were going to work on together. And, and um, he would ask me, you know, a question, some theological question. And uh, I'd say, well, do you want the short version of the long version? And he'd say, well, where are we going? And if it was a long trip, we'd do the long version. And we would do a deep dive. I had my old Bible college Bible. And it looks very spiritual. So it's all held together with duct tape because it was under my seat. And Anyway, uh, I told him one time, I started laughing. And I, I said, he goes, what's so funny? <laughs> and this young guy. Uh, and he's a pastor, he has my old job now, he's a pastor, serving the Lord, will likely be the next senior pastor of the church I came from. But anyway, he started, I'm in the truck with him, and I start laughing, he goes, what's so funny? And I said, I just realized something about you, Billy. He said, what's that? I said, almost every one of your childhood stories ends with, and then the cop showed up. <laughs> and, and I was, and he, he kind of looked for a second, he goes, yeah, I guess you're right. There's no point in that story other than it reminded me when Jesus showed up. I remember, well, for Billy, the cop showed up. Here's the point, though, I want to make. When Jesus comes and he just says cheer up, often, folks, in our lives, we face really difficult circumstances. We've got to learn to interpret what's happening in the physical realm through the lens of the spiritual. Things looked awful for Paul. They didn't look good. And true, that which amounts to foolishness, failure in the world's eyes, very often the same thing uh, that results in insight, perspective, wisdom in the hearts and the minds of God's people. So I'll I'll tell you, I've learned over the years to never downplay the simplicity of what's going on in someone's life. There may be something very profound that God is working in their heart through it all. Our circumstances are the ones that uh, that's what we own. And God is always at work. He's always ahead of us. Second thing I want to talk about here is let's not shoot the wounded or those doing the wounding, both sides. I'm aware that there are those among us who are wounded, either through their own actions or by the actions of others. They need our compassion, our understanding, our care. They need the love of God. It's my sincere prayer that if you've come here wounded for whatever reason, that you find love and healing and purpose. In our fellowship among us, sincere prayer. When I pray a lot, now with that woundedness, often comes a degree of anger or bitterness to, towards those who have done the wounding. I read a passage here in Colossians. Colossians chapter three, verses twelve and thirteen tells us: Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercy, kindness, humility, meekness, long suffering bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Not an option. Not an option. Be careful. There's no place for bitterness or gossip or holding grudges in the kingdom. It's not part of it. And it doesn't mean we walk around acting like nothing happened with us or with them or some, with somebody we care about. That's not what I'm saying. What it does mean is we see the great debt that's been forgiven us. An enormous debt as we now bear with one another. So what does it mean to have the mind of Christ? It's a nice churchy term, but what does it mean? It means I want to act like Jesus does. That's why our tagline here is learning to think like Jesus. That's our goal, and it's a lofty goal. It's one that we will never accomplish this side of heaven, but we're all in process, and that's truly something to aspire to. And, and it means that we forget what lies behind, as the Apostle Paul did. We press on together, looking forward to what the Lord's currently doing and what he's going to do in our lives and in our fellowship. The third thing, and I'll finish with this, is look for the providential hand of God in the detail of your life. Now, we have a unique advantage as we fly over. I, it, it, one of the ways I, 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 and I do this when I teach and it's also the way I study is I look at it as zoom out, zoom in. You know, like I had a telephoto lens. <laughs> was those old cameras before smartphones, but that, that I could zoom in on something or I could zoom out, look at the whole thing. As we zoom out here and we look at the entire passage, as we fly over it, we get perspective. And there, are time, and this is a great passage that offers us that type of perspective, because in the middle of dealing with three separate riots, it'd be difficult for God or Paul to see God's hand in it. He's going through it. He's living it. We're looking down on it In the midst of a sinister, premeditated plan uh, by a group of assassins assisted by the nation's religious leaders to murder Paul, it would be difficult to see God's hand in it. Yet we see clearly as we study this past, that was the case all along. And I submit to you, God was working. Now, I want to be clear. Jesus doesn't advocate evil. God doesn't advocate evil. He would not be God if he did. He's holy, pure. Purity as relates to infinity. But while he doesn't advocate evil, he'll allow, and he will accomplish his purpose through it. And I'm not saying I understand it all, not God. But I, I'm simply saying that I see that's clearly what he does. And I'm encouraged as I look at the circumstances of my own life, as I look at passages like this. All of these things go in haywire. This moving. God is working, Paul gets to the end of himself. Jesus shows up, hey Paul, you know, cheer up you've been faithful here in Jerusalem, even though not one person came. And guess what? I've got more for you to do. I'm going to send you to Rome. And then immediately the circumstances start coming about through which the commander says, I got to get this guy out of here. And guess what? Yeah, he'll go to Caesarea for a couple of years. We're going to get into that. But he's on his way to Rome for this point. Fascinating how that worked. Are you dealing with things you don't understand? Are there circumstances in your life that seem completely out of control? Have you been in the trenches, just worn out? Folks, there's times where it seems like Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. Storms raging all around. Cheer up. One of the best known passages in the scripture is Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That's a great passage. But you know, it's one of those passages that if you've been a Christian for five minutes, you've heard this passage. So the question isn't whether or not I know this verse, a great many people do. The real question, as I apply God's word to my life, is whether or not I believe it. He's working. He's moving. Be encouraged. The providential hand of God is at work in your life. And he is working things to a glorious end. You might not see it right now. Paul didn't. He's sitting there on his duff in a jail, wondering how everything went haywire. And yet Jesus was working through it all. And he was doing a marvelous work that would be recorded down through the annals of history in the very word of God. Take care. Let's pray. Father, as we as we look at this verse or these verses and we look at this passage, I know my heart is encouraged. Just looking at when things outwardly look like they're just going crazy, but seeing your your hand, your work through all of it. What a great encouragement each of us. I pray, Father, for my brothers and sisters here, for those um, perhaps watching online, that you would just comfort. We were told that your Holy Spirit comforts us in all of our affliction, that you would bind up our wounds, that you would work in our heart. Perhaps, Father, we're here this morning and simply your word for us is cheer up. Whatever it is, Father, I pray that as we appropriate your word in our lives, that you would be glorified in us, that you would be enlarged in our hearts. And that you, Father, would have your way with me. That we would be learning more and more to think like Jesus. That we would be conformed to the image of your Son. Knowing that all things work together for good. To those that love you and are called according to you. So that's our desire. We pray now that you we give ourselves afresh to you. Amen.